Thank you for joining New Life Fellowship Podcast today. We are a church desiring to expand the kingdom of God by making disciples. We pray that this message inspires you, build your faith, and hope that it will give you perspective to see that our God is moving in your life. Hope you enjoyed the message. Happy New Year, New Life. Yeah, it's so good to see you guys this new year. I think the last time I saw you was 2019. Now it's 2020. We're starting a new decade. Uh, you know, um, uh, you know for, for those of you who are here today, maybe you're making a New Year's resolution. You're saying, you know, today I'm going to start uh, coming out to church more often. Um, I haven't been to church in a long time. You know, we really want to welcome you here. We're so glad that you're here worshiping with us today. We're so glad that you've decided to make that resolution in your life. And my, my, my encouragement to you is to make that commitment and to stick with it this year to really stick to that commitment and to walk with us. You know, one of the things that I, I really think is a strength and I really like about our church, actually, is that we're, we're at a size. We're at a size now where you can walk in and out of our church anonymously. You can come in and out. You can sit in the seat, leave without even having anybody notice you. And, and that's actually good for some people in some seasons of life. You need to come. You need to worship. You need to just be fed. You need to listen. And, and it's great. And I hope you do that. I hope you continue to do that. But, of course, throughout the year, I will challenge and I will encourage you to go deeper into community with us because that would be the next step for you is to go deeper and deeper into community uh, with us. Uh, you know, we've been going through this series uh, through the book of Philippians. We entitled it Be Glad. But as I've been studying deeper and deeper into the book of Philippians, I've been realizing this book is actually about community. And then the next sermon series we're going to be actually doing after this, after uh, eight or nine weeks of this, is we're going to do a series in community. So we're going to talk a whole lot about community and including today. Uh, we're going to address a little bit more about what it means to be a community. Uh, you know, uh, two weeks ago, I opened up by uh, this series by talking about how one of the sources of joy that we can have in our lives is actually this act of community, of actually having friendships and deep relationships in our lives. And not only deep relationships for the sake of it, but actually gospel-centered, Christ-centered, deep relationships where God, where you're Velcroing yourself to God and people, where you're going deep in that way. Uh, last week, Pastor Jason Min came and guest spoke for us, and he talked about this aspect of reorienting our reference points. That it shouldn't be, joy should come when we reorient ourselves, not on money or success or fame or status, but when we make our reference point the cross and Jesus Christ alone. And so today what I want to do is I want to revisit this aspect of community and talk a little bit more about how do we actually build community? How do we actually go ahead and, 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 and continuously be a gospel-centered community? And so we're going to open up our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. And if you're able, let's go ahead and rise as we read God's word together. Uh, there's nothing magical, uh, magical about rising and reading. It's just we want to honor the reading of God's word. Uh, as we have been trying to do, I'm going to go ahead and read the passage for us. I'm going to say this phrase, this is the word of the Lord. And then if you could all respond, thanks be to God. And that lyric or that uh, refrain or that line will be up on the screens for you there. Um, I'll go ahead and pray for us after we're done with that. If you could remain standing throughout that prayer, and then I'll seat you once we're done with prayer, okay? Well, it's a whole thing, okay? So you got to remember, okay? It's a lot. So Philippians chapter 2, uh, 1 to 11. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for this time together. We pray that you would inhabit our bodies with your spirit. Would you allow us to really soak in these words? God, we need your help. We cannot do this on our own. We need you, Lord, to really speak into our hearts today. I need you, Lord, to really speak your truth. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Um, we have three points as we normally do. Uh, the first point is the surprise of humility. The surprise of humility. Uh, the second point is the definition of humility. And then our third point is going to be the problem of humility. Okay, so three points. Uh, the surprise, the definition, and then the problem. So if you're taking notes, you can write that down. Um, so for our first point, uh, you know, the Philippian church, if you guys don't know, was probably one of the healthiest churches that Paul had ever planted in his entire missionary career. It was indeed one of the healthiest churches, and that's why if you have read through the book of Philippians, it's very different than all the other letters the Apostle Paul has ever written. If you read 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, uh, there's a lot of actually animosity between Paul and the church. Uh, if you read even Ephesians or Romans, it's more like a theological treatise than, than it is like this affectionate letter. But if you read through the book of Philippians, Paul is like gushing with affections. He's like, I love you guys. You guys are so awesome. Like, man, like this is amazing. Like our relationship. And one of the reasons why is because this was one of Paul's healthiest churches. Uh, if you look back at Acts chapter 16, which tells us the beginning of this Philippian church, it only starts off with three people. And it's a three-person ragtag team, if you would. One of them is a woman named Lydia, okay, who's a small business owner. She's fairly wealthy. She's one of the first converts. The second convert is a demon-possessed girl. Second convert. Third convert, a Philippian jailer. Paul converts them in jail, and these three people in their household comprise the Philippian church when Paul plants it. This letter is written one decade later, 10 years later, and this letter opens up by Paul addressing all the saints, the deacons, and the overseers, meaning this, that there's structure in the church now. The church has grown. It's very vibrant. Uh, there's a lot of people in it. And in fact, they have uh, you know, different hierarchies of leadership. They have an elder. They have deacons. They have all sorts of things. They have all this structure. And it's because they've grown over time. Uh, moreover, Paul, throughout his letters, will actually uh, occasionally bring up the Philippian church. He calls them the Macedonian church because that's where they were at. But if you read 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, Paul tells us that the Philippian church was so generous that they gave so much to Paul that they almost went bankrupt. That's how generous they were. They were almost impoverished because of their generosity towards Paul. And so this is the reason why Paul, we say that this is one of Paul's healthiest churches that he's ever planted. And yet here's the crazy thing. Here's the incredible thing. As, as I was kind of doing my research on the Philippian church, this is the incredible thing. Even though they were generous out of their minds, even though they loved Jesus, even though they were one of Paul's healthiest churches, in chapter 2, verses 14, which is right after this passage, Paul tells us that the church is actually dealing with grumbling and disputing. The church is actually fighting. 
In fact, in chapter 4, he later on tells us that there's these two women. It's kind of come to the head. These two women named Euodia and Syntyche are actually fighting. And he says, like, look, like, help them work this out. And this is why at the very beginning in verse 1 and 2, he says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, meaning, look, if you love Jesus even one bit, if you've been touched by Jesus, he says, look, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Be united, in other words, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's saying, look, stop the bickering, stop the fighting, stop the disputing, stop the fighting. And the reason why I highlight this is because if this happens to one of the Apostle Paul's healthiest churches, this should, I mean, this is, I mean, this is like, you have to imagine, the Apostle Paul is the Michael Jordan of church planting, right? He's the Tiger Woods of pastoring, He's the Wayne Gretzky of evangelism, right? And, and if he plants his healthiest church, and this happens to his healthiest church, then this will most likely to hap- happen to every other church under the sun. If this happens to the Apostle Paul's healthiest churches, it will and can happen to every other church under the sun, and it will happen to New Life Fellowship. You know, Benjamin Franklin, I think a lot of people are, are kind of, uh, you know, relate this quote to him, but he says this, right? In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes, right? He says nothing, like basically, you know, you, your whole life you'll, you'll, you'll always pay taxes and then you'll die one day. That's for certain, right? And I would say this. I would kind of take that same phrase and, and rework it and say this, right? Nothing is more certain in the church than disputes. I'm not a fortune teller. Okay, I'm not a prophet. Uh, I, I don't have uh, powers beyond uh, my capacities as I do now. But I can tell you one thing for certain, okay? In 2020... 2021, 2022, years beyond, New Life Fellowship will have fights and disputes. We will. We will grumble, we will dispute, we will fight. That's just a fact. A fact of life. Right? If Michael Jordan can miss a shot, if Wayne Gretzky can trip up sometimes, right? If Tiger Woods can shank a shot, I mean, we, I mean, you know what I mean? We're going to screw up once and uh, now and again. And it is absolutely no surprise to us that we will actually fail and fall as a church. Look, I think New Life Fellowship has been through ups and downs, right? It's been through its ups and downs. But I think right now, I can, I can kind of confidently say that I think we're in a healthy, healthy place. We're, we're not like a church that's going to be divided anytime soon. We're in a healthy, healthy place. And yet what I know for certain is even though we're healthy, and we're going to get healthier this year. We have plans to make this church even healthier. But even though we make this church healthier, we will have fights. We will have disputes. We will see disagreements in the church. And I know what you're thinking, wow. You're such a Debbie Downer. <laughs> the 2020, you're supposed to be filled with hope. Why, why are you telling us that, that we're certain to have disputes and fights? Well, it's because of this. Last week, Pastor Jason Min used this phrase, right? He said, don't be surprised by suffering. And in the same way, I want, I want you to know, don't be surprised by disputes. Right? I remember when my wife and I were about to get married, so many people came up to us, and they would tell us their so- stories about their first year of marriage. They'd be like, Eric, man, my first year of marriage, it was horrible. Me and my wife almost got a divorce. We fought every day like it was nuts, right? And then we talked to another couple, and they'd be like, same thing. First year of marriage was horrible. Like, we had to, like, live together, and, you know, she, like you know, posed as this clean person, but she's actually very messy. And he posed himself as this really clean, neat guy, but he's a barbarian when I live with him, right? There's like all these disputes going on in their marriage. 
And so over and over again, before we got married, people told us one piece of advice. Hey, you know what? Your first year of marriage is going to be incredibly difficult. It's going to be just really hard. You just have to know that that's the way it's going to be. In fact, some people came up to us and said, it wasn't just our first year. It was the first three years of our marriage. We just fought like cats and dogs the first three, and then the next three were okay. They, were, they got better, you know? And, and I think this was actually helpful for us because as we approached our marriage, we, we came to realize, look, we're going to expect this. It's not going to be a surprise when we start fighting. We should at least expect to have some kind of conflict. And, and in my opinion, I think what makes a healthy marriage is not the fact that you'd never ever fight. I think healthy marriages always have disputes, always have arguments. But what makes that marriage healthy is if you're able to resolve those conflicts, if you're able to resolve those disputes. And in the same way, what will make New Life Fellowship a healthy church is not the fact that we have zero disputes. It's the fact that we can overcome these disputes. If we can actually overcome and really love and forgive each other in a healthy way so we can grow together as a church. You know, I'm, I'm so glad these people told us this because in some sense it gave us permission to fail as a married couple. It gave us permission to actually be like, you know what? Like we are going to get into fights and not to hide it, not to feel shameful of it. And, and, I'm, and I'm saying this as well because a lot of times the reason why people end up leaving churches, the reason why people end up getting divorces is because they somehow are surprised by the fighting. And yet one of the reasons why people leave churches is because they're surprised. They're like, oh, I thought church was supposed to be this lovely place. I thought it was supposed to be where everyone's united. And yes, of course, we are working towards that. But you have to understand we are all sinners. And we will continue to fight. And yet here's the point is that we should not be surprised by it at all. And that we should rather be prepared for it. So, how do we overcome the disputes and fighting and dissension? This is true of not only our church, but even in your personal relationships. Maybe your coworker, maybe you have a dispute with a coworker or with your wife or your husband. How do you actually overcome disputes in general? And Paul gives us the answer right here. He says, humility. See, I think what's so interesting is Paul doesn't say the, the way to overcome fights and disputes is to, is to actually become more persuasive about how to convince the other person that they're wrong. Right? Paul doesn't say, hey, like, learn how to actually convince other people that they're wrong, that they're the ones to blame, they're the ones uh, that are making your life hell. No, no, no. Paul says, no, no. Look internally. Change your character. Become more humble. Look at me at verse 2. Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. So he's saying, look, like, like make, make me joyful. Become one. Be united. Right? Just like a father loves to see their kids playing together and not fighting. Paul is saying, look, like, complete my joy. Make me joyful by being united. And then he tells us how. In verse 3, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The way to overcome dissension, the, over, uh, the way to overcome disputes and fighting is through humility. And so that moves us to our second point, the definition of humility, okay? So let's talk a little bit about humility, what it looks like. What does it smell like? What, is it, what does it not look like? Uh, in our, we have four subpoints under this one. And uh, the first two subpoints are actually about what humility isn't. We have to debunk some myths, in other words, about what humility is not. And then uh, the last two points, we'll actually talk about what humility is, okay? So here's the first subpoint under the definition of humility. Humility is not false modesty. It's not false modesty, okay? I see this so often, right? People come up to somebody else and be like, dude, good job at singing. Good job at playing basketball. Good job at preaching. Good job at, you know, skiing or whatever. And people will be like, no, 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 not me. I, I suck. Like, I'm not that good. I'm telling you I'm not that good, right? 
But in reality, what they're doing is they're being falsely modest. They don't actually mean it. They know that they're actually really good. They actually know that they're actually gifted in this area, but they just say, oh, like, they think that's the humble thing. Oh, no, no, it's not me. It's not me. It's all Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, man. You know, Paul, uh, this word uh, that Paul uses here for humility, it's this word, uh, and I can't even say this, tapenophrosin, okay? Tapenophrosin, okay? And it's important that you know the Greek because in Colossians chapter 2, 18, okay, and in Colossians chapter 2, verse 23, uh, he actually uses the same word again, okay? But look at how he uses it in Colossians, okay? Look at the screens. It'll be up there for you. Colossians chapter 2. He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. That word asceticism is the tapenophrosin that we just talked about, humility, he says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on humility and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. And then verse 23, he says this, they, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism to penophrosin, humility, right? That's what, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You know what he's saying? He's saying that only fake people, only hypocrites pretend to have humility. They fake it. They, they, oh no, it's not me, but in reality they know that they're good. That's basically hypocrisy. It's lying. It's a sin. But look, look conversely, in Romans chapter 12 verse 3, Paul is addressing gifts that God has given to you. Look what he says. This is remarkable in my opinion, okay? He says, for by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, okay, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to. Okay, so don't puff yourself up. Don't think you're better than you actually are, okay? But then look what he says. He says, to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. In other words, he's saying this, measure yourself accordingly. If God has given you the gift of singing, then you should say, I'm good at singing. God has given it to me. I didn't earn it, God has given it to me, it's a gift, but I do have these gifts. See, humble people actually understand what they are good at and what they are not good at. They don't boast, they're not braggadocious about it, but they understand this is the way God created me, this is the gifts that God has given to me, and it's okay. It's okay for me to say thank you, thank you for complimenting me, thank you because I know I'm a good singer, I know I'm good at architecture, I know I'm good at whatever it is in life that you're good at. It's okay to say you're good at it. Because that's what God has gifted you with. And humble people will actually be able to receive compliments because of the gifts that God has given to them. Again, here's the key. It's being able to acknowledge your gifts, but then pointing back to the Holy Spirit and saying, the Holy Spirit gave these things to me. And that's where you give God credit. That's where you give God due. But in some sense, the Holy Spirit has decided to use you. You know what I think is really interesting? If you go back and you read the book of Nehemiah, chapter 3, Okay, there's this long list of names of all these people that helped rebuild the wall of Jerusalem because that's what the whole book of Nehemiah is about, right? All these Jews come back to Jerusalem. They, they're allowed to come back into Jerusalem after they've been exiled. They come back to rebuild the wall and they're rebuilding the wall so they can rebuild all of Jerusalem. But at the very beginning of the book, do you know what happens? Nehemiah lists out all of these names of people with skills and gifts. And you know Nehemiah doesn't say? He doesn't say, oh, the Holy Spirit built the whole wall. God built the whole wall. He says, no, these people built it. And actually their names are preserved in our Bibles for all of eternity now because of their faithful work. They actually got some credit because of the gifts God had given to them. Again, it's not a braggadocious way. It's not an arrogant way. But it's being, being able to say, God has gifted me in this way and I'm going to use them appropriately. The most humble people are actually people who know themselves are actually people who understand the gifts that God has given to them. They, they, they are able to receive the compliments, but they're also able to say it's all because of God and his work and his gifting that he's given to me.
Here's the second thing humility is not. Humility is not having low self-esteem. Okay, humility is not having low self-esteem, okay? When we think of pride, we oftentimes think of the arrogant person, right, who's puffed up, has a big chest, and is like, look at me, look at all of my accomplishments, look at how many jobs I've worked, look at how many promotions I've received. We oftentimes think of that person, and that is partly it, right? That is partly what pride is. And Paul actually points that out here in verse 3, right? He's, he uses uh, these two words to oppose humility, right? He says conceited and self-ambition. Okay, this word conceit actually means empty glory, Okay, empty glory, but there's a kind of an underlying uh, uh, kind of connotation to it. It means somebody who's delusional. Somebody who's delusional. So they, they think they're bigger than they actually are. Their, their glory is empty. They have no basis for their pride. They just talk a really big game, but there's nothing actually underneath it. And so he is saying part of pride is being braggadocious, is being arrogant, is being somebody who's puffed up without any basis. But then he says there's another, there's another uh, aspect to pride. He says it's people who are, have selfish ambition. And here's the second aspect of pride. It says it's someone who is passionate about themselves. Somebody who's ambitious about themselves. Whenever you're passionate about something, what do you do? You think about it a lot, don't you? If you're passionate about your kids, you think about your kids a lot. If you're passionate about your job, you think about your job a lot. If you're passionate about your wife, you think about your wife a lot. If you're passionate, whatever you're passionate about, you think about a lot. And he's basically saying, look, you think about yourself a lot. Is it on your mind? And here's the thing. See, self, uh, people with low self-esteem may not think highly of themselves. They might not boast a lot, but they actually think quite a lot about themselves. They're always thinking about how they've been slighted, about how people uh, did something to them. They're always constantly focusing about themselves. People with low self-esteem are constantly thinking about themselves. They are constantly thinking about how they aren't good enough or beautiful enough or smart enough. They're constantly thinking about themselves. And here's what it looks like, right? This is what people, they're like, oh, oh they, did, they didn't invite me out to this. They didn't invite me out to this birthday party. That's because I, I, I'm, I'm so horrible. I'm such a horrible person. That's why they didn't invite me out. But you see what, a low, you see what they've done? They've made that whole event about themselves. That, that event might have been a birthday party to celebrate somebody else, but all of a sudden, they've turned this event to, to about them. Or, or here's another one. Oh, they, they complimented so-and-so, but they didn't compliment me. Instead of celebrating that person that was just complimenting and being like, wow, like, they're right, like, wow, you have these giftings, they make it about themselves. Oh, I'm not as charming or talented or beautiful, and that's why I'm not as successful, that's why I don't have the, the kinds of kids they have, the kinds of husband they have, or the wife that they have, the house that they have, because I'm, I'm not, not, they're unable to celebrate other people, they just look at other people's success and they turn it about themselves. They make it all about themselves. People with low self-esteem, they actually draw attention to themselves constantly and therefore being prideful. What's underneath all of that is pride. Uh, you know, after I got married, uh, like literally a day after, I, I, actually not even the day after, the night of, I had this massive fever. It went up to like 103. Uh, over the next few days, uh, this swelling in my neck just started getting, uh, I just had this huge lump. And, and I wish I could have found the picture. I took a picture of myself a, a long time ago, but it, it, was, it was about... It was about the size of a golf ball. It was just protruding out of my neck. I didn't know what was going on. So I went to the doctor. I ended up going to a, you know, an ear, nose, throat specialist or whatever. And they basically told me that my lymph node, there's a thing in here called the lymph node that got infected. And so that's why it was swelled up. That's why I ended up having a fever. And so they gave me antibiotics and it went down. 
But you know what's interesting? I never knew my lymph node ever existed. I didn't know it existed until it puffed up and swelled up. I paid no attention to it at all. I didn't even know there was something called a lymph node. And then until it puffed up and swelled up, did I not begin to pay attention every moment of the, every moment of the day, I was just touching it. I was like, oh, is it bigger? Is it smaller? Like, has it gone down? Like, what's going on? Where, only then. And in the same way, that's what happens. Your ego puffs up, it swells up, it gets bigger, and so what you do is you draw attention to it because it's been hurt. Look what Tim Keller says. He he wrote this really short, fascinating book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Okay, And and listen to what he says. He says, have you ever thought about the fact that you do not notice your body until there is something wrong with it? When we are walking around, we are not usually thinking how fantastic our toes are feeling or how brilliantly our elbows are working today. We would only think uh, like that if there had uh, had previously been something wrong with them. That is because the parts of our body only draw attention to themselves if there is something wrong with them. The ego often hurts. That is because it has something incredibly wrong with it, something unbelievably wrong with it. It is always drawing attention to itself. It does so every single day. It is always making us think about how we look and how we are treated. People sometimes see their feelings are hurt, but our feelings can't get hurt. It is the ego that hurts, my sense of self, my identity, our feelings are fine. It is my ego that hurts. See, when your ego is hurt, it swells up, it puffs up into pride. And that pride draws attention to itself. So then what is humility? What is humility? Humility is this. Humility is to count others more significant than yourselves. Okay, Uh, look what Paul says in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, which is the opposite of humility. But in humility, now he tells us what it is, count others more significant than yourselves. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. See, humility is not false modesty. Humility does not say have low self-esteem and draw attention to yourself. Humility says, I'm going to stay right where I am. I know what God's gifted me with. I know the things that God has given to me. But now what I'm going to do is I'm going to take people and elevate them above myself. I'm going to take people and elevate them and count them more significant than myself. I'm not going to degrade myself. I'm not going to lower myself. I'm not saying that I need to be hateful towards myself. But rather, I'm going to take people and elevate them above myself. I'm going to make their interests more important than my own. You know, I was going to use this quote from C.S. Lewis uh, from Mere Christianity, but I actually think Tim Keller words C.S. Lewis a little bit better uh, in this sense. And so I'm going to read again from Tim Keller from his Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness book. But listen to what he says. He says, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity makes a brilliant observation about gospel humility at the very end of his chapter on pride. If we were to meet a truly humble person, Lewis says, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not always be telling us they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they are nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be, of to- uh, to be totally interested in us because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. It is thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Uh, Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. 
In fact, I stopped thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that, on, uh, that only self-forgetfulness brings. You hear what he's saying? Humility is so focused on the other person, so interested in the other person that you actually forget about yourself. Have you ever had those nights where you've had dinner, a Thanksgiving meal or a Christmas meal, where you're sitting around and you're just so interested in what's going on in other people's lives and they're telling you story after story and you're just right there with them and you forget the time has flown by. And you're like, oh my gosh, it's midnight already. I can't even believe that. I've just, I've just been having so much fun like learning and being with you. Or have you ever been so in love or so enamored with some guy or girl that you forget what you're doing or saying in the moment because you're so focused in on them? You know, I've, I, I've shared this story before, but when my, first, my wife and I was first dating, this happened to me quite frequently because I, would, I, I was a pastoral intern at the time. I, I would do kind of the MC stuff at the beginning of service, and I would talk to people, and afterwards people would want to meet and talk. And yet all I could think about was my wife. All I could think about was where she was in the room. Because that, that's how we met. We met at church and she would come in and worship and I'd be talking to some guy and this guy might be pouring out his heart. He's like, oh man, I went through this breakup. But all I could think about was, Jessica, where is she? Oh my gosh, she's talking to that guy. What is he doing? He's handsomer than me. Stop talking, right? That, that was all that was in my mind. I was just so focused in on her that I forgot about what I was doing. If you meet truly humble people, you'll realize that they are passionate people. They're not timid. They're passionate. They're not meek, they're not, they're not small, they're not insignificant. They're very bold. And they love you. They're interested in the cause. They're interested in you. They're interested in people. They're interested in Christ. They're interested in all these other things besides themselves. They care about others and their interests far above anyone else's. You know, I've, I've shared this story as well, but... Um, uh, I was ordained about uh, three years ago in 2016. And I remember right after I was ordained, I got my first call to do a wedding. And it was not in a banquet hall. It was not in a, uh, you know, a luxurious hotel. It was not in a, even a nice little barn that they would have out in you know, Snohomish County or something like that. It was in the bedroom uh, of this dying woman. And uh, her daughter had called me up and said, you know, we're, we're, we got engaged, but we, we want to be married. We, we were thinking about getting married next year, but my mom's just not going to make it. And so we want you to come and marry us like today. And so I put everything aside. I went over to their house. And um, before uh, the actual wedding happened, uh, you know, we had some time to talk because the mom was, uh, was basically at the end of her life. She uh, was barely awake. Uh, she would only wake up for two, three minutes at a time, and then she'd go right back into her slumber uh, because her body was fighting the cancer so uh, ferociously. And so during that time, I, I just heard story after story about her mother and how gospel-centered and how humble she was and the kind of service she provided for her daughter, how she raised her son and her daughter all on her own, how she served the church, loved the church, loved the gospel, was evangelizing and preaching to the very end of her life and how much she cared about everyone else besides herself. And then finally the nurse came out. She said, okay, she's awake. It's time to do the wedding. So we went in. And we only had a few minutes to do the wedding because she could only stay awake. But the first minute, the first minute, the mother, all she did was she just got all of her energy, all she could muster up because she wanted to say one thing to her daughter. That's all she could say. She knew she could only say one thing to her daughter. And so she mustered up all of her strength. And she whispered to her, her nurse to call her daughter over. And so her daughter came nearby. And she, she, you know what she said to her daughter? She said, have you eaten today? Have you eaten today? All she cared about was her daughter. She didn't care about herself. She didn't care about the cancer. She didn't care about anything else. She was far interested, more interested in her daughter, even at the end of her life. 
And when I saw that, man, I, I, I broke down in tears. I, I could not, I was just like, man, this is true gospel humility. Somebody who loves others more than themselves. That they are so more interested, so much more interested in that person. We did the wedding, it was done, but at the end of the day, my heart was changed more than anything else. I was so touched and moved by the gospel humility that I saw in her mother. You know, Jesus, at the end of his life, when he's making his way up to the cross, you know what he does? He stops by his mother, and he basically makes sure that his mother is taken care of, even though he's being persecuted and taken up to die. When Jesus is on the cross, you know what he's doing? He's counting others more significant than himself. He looks at the thief uh, to his left and to his right, and he tries to minister to both. And he actually even evangelizes and saves one. Because Jesus counted others more significant than himself. That's our Lord. That's our Savior. That's who we worship. And Paul tells us to take cues from him. Have this mind amongst yourselves. Have this mind that is found in Christ Jesus. To count others more significant than yourself. Here's the final aspect of humility. Humility is to count your sins more significant than other sins. Humility is to count your sins more significant than other sins. You know, I remember a while back, I was trying to learn how to play tennis, and this one guy said, I'll, I'll teach you, but he, I mean, this guy was phenomenal. I remember he was standing at the service line, and you know, he was doing his little serving drills, and he set up these little pylons, like these little, cone, or like, um, you know, those, uh, the, the canister, the ball, and he set up the canisters across the other side, and he was nailing serves from like the other side of the court and just hitting these little uh, canisters like at 200 miles an hour. I don't know. I don't know how fast the tennis ball goes, but probably it just seemed like 200 miles an hour. We started rallying. He started teaching me some things. And then later on, we decided to play doubles with his, uh, with other friends who were there. So we started playing doubles and lo and behold, we lose every single game. <laughs> we lost every single one. And no, at this point, it would have been ludicrous for me to have said to him, it's all your fault. <laughs> you're, you're, you're horrible. No, Right? That would be ludicrous. Why? Because he's more significant than I am. He's better. I should hold him in higher esteem because he's actually better at tennis than me. Right? So in that moment, what I did was I said, of course, like anybody would say, no one has to be humble to say that, but it was like, man, I, I really messed up. I'm so sorry. Like I, I, the reason why we lost was because of me, basically. And, and I'm saying this because this is what happens when you begin counting others more significant than yourselves. You actually start to hold them in higher esteem, and because you hold them in higher esteem, what you realize is that if there is a problem, if there is an issue, if there is dissension or discord, you always look to yourself. You say, what did I do wrong? See, a humble, a humble somebody who's a, a humble father doesn't look to his kids and say, what the heck are you guys doing wrong? Why are you guys so evil? Why are you guys never disobeying me? A humble father would say, man, how can I better father these children? What am I doing? What can I do to change? What can I do to begin leading them better? A humble mother doesn't look at how messy the house is and points the finger at her kids or her husband. She looks internally and says, how can I lead my household a little bit better? You know, in a marriage, when things have gone wrong, a humble spouse will say, what did I do? What did I contribute to this marriage that has made it so horrible? Because you count other, the other person more significant than yourself. Jonathan Edwards, he's a, uh, he's a pastor that lived a few hundred years ago here in America. And uh, he wrote uh, extensively on pride and on humility. And look what he says here. He says, spiritual pride tends to speak of other person's sins with bitterness or with laughter and levity and an air of contempt. But pure Christian humility rather tends either to be silent about these problems or to speak of them with grief and pity. Meaning he's saying this, look, Christian humility 
barely, rarely do you ever talk about other people's sins. And if you do, it's like with grief and like with a lot of angst in you. But look what he goes on to say. Spiritual pride is very apt to suspect others, but a humble Christian is most guarded about himself. He is as suspicious of nothing in the world as he is of his own heart. The proud person is apt to find fault with other believers that they are low in grace and to be much in observing how cold and dead they are and to be quick to note their deficiencies. But the humble Christian has so much to do at home and sees so much evil in his own heart and is so concerned about it that he is not apt to be very busy with other hearts. He is apt to esteem others better than himself. Do you point the finger a lot? Are you constantly blaming other people for, you, for your problems, for, your, for, for what's going on in a particular relationship? If so, it means that you're spiritually proud. See, because a humble Christian will say, no, 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 no. There's some, I'm, I'm doing something here. There, I've got I've to go inwards and meditate upon what, what are the sins that I'm bringing forth into this relationship that are causing this dissension, that causing this, these disputes. You know, there's a famous story about a man named G.K. Chesterton, who's a famous author. And uh, a newspaper sent a letter to him, um, um, basically asking him to answer this question. And they sent this letter out to numerous authors, basically asking them to answer this one question. And the question is this, what's wrong with the world today? What's wrong with the world today? And so G.K. Chesterton famously penned this really short letter. And this is what the letter said. It said, dear sir, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. He said, I am. I'm what's wrong with the world. I need to be fixed first. I need to start looking internally. I need to start looking at my sins and seeing how I contribute to the madness and the chaos that is my life, that is the world. And truly gospel humble, gospel-centered humble people will look at their own sins uh, more often than they do others. They will esteem other people more highly than themselves. This leads us to our third point, the problem of humility. So how do you get humility? There are two problems, okay, that we're going to identify right now with acquiring humility, okay? And here's, uh, th these are two subpoints under this uh, point, okay? The first is this. The more you try to get humility, the less you'll get it. The more you try to get humility, the less you'll actually get it. The more you try to get humility, the more prideful you'll actually become, actually. And here's the reason why, because this is what right, we said, humility is thinking less of yourself, but to get humility, you have to think about yourself. And you're like, I gotta become more humble. Oh, like what, you know, and you're constantly thinking about yourself. And this is why humility is, is sort of paradoxical in some sense. If you try to obtain it, you won't obtain it. If you try to get it, you'll actually become more prideful. It's sort of like social media, right? Isn't it interesting? Social media should make you more sociable, but actually studies have shown time and time again that the more social media you do, the less sociable you'll be, the less likely it is that you'll have uh, deep friendships and networks. Um, another paradox, choice. You think more choices will make you more happy. More choices would be able to make, have you make better choices, but they're showing now that more choices actually uh, uh, cripple you. They actually make you more anxious. And so you think more choices will make you more happy, but more choices don't make you more happy, they make you more anxious. And therefore you don't make the choice, therefore making a choice not to make a choice. But the more you try to keep someone close to you, the more you actually push them away. Because when you try to keep them close to you, you actually become needy, and that neediness actually pushes them away. The more humble you try to be, the less humble you will actually become. It's just a paradox. It's just how it is, and that's a problem. That's a struggle. Here's a second problem. Our culture has told us that to become more humble, hardworking, well-adjusted, successful Americans, we have to focus in on something called high self-worth. 
high self-worth. Let me translate this a little bit, okay? We have moved to become a culture that encourages them, themselves to see themselves as special. You are special. You are somebody. You are, oh, you're the specialist. But this is why, right, we give participation trophies to every kid. Doesn't matter if they, if they failed. They get a participation trophy, right? This is why no one gets cut on sports teams anymore, right? You can't get cut. Why? Because everyone is special, right? This is why parents are encouraged to celebrate their children even though they fail. I mean, I'm not saying you should call your child and be like, hey, look at you failure, right? But, but we, we somehow try to make our children feel special. This is why we encourage our children to feel special. This is why Hollywood encur- encourages you to feel special, okay? But look at what David Brooks, he's, a, he's an author. He wrote this book called uh, Road to Character, and he says this. He says, as I looked around the popular culture, I kept finding the same messages everywhere. You are special. Movies from Pixar and Disney are constantly telling children how wonderful they are. Commencement speeches are larded with the same cliches. Don't accept limits. You have a responsibility to do great things because you are so great. This is the gospel of self-trust. And David Brooks, when he was writing this, was not a Christian. He's just a secular person, just a secular man. And he's writing about this gospel of self-trust, that we think we are special. You know, in an interview with Jean Twenge, who's a psychology professor at SDSU, um, she cites these. She says, on the whole, millennials are simply more narcissistic than previous generations. That is, they score higher on the narcissistic personality inventory. This survey asks people if they relate to statements like, I have a natural talent for influencing people, and I like to look at myself in the mirror. In fact, this survey asks people to rate themselves if they believe they are above average or average, and they compare it to the 50s, they scored overwhelmingly higher. Okay, look at this stat now. In between 1948 and 1954, psychologists asked more than 10,000 adolescents whether they considered themselves to be a very important person, okay? At that point in 1954, okay, 12% said yes, okay, pretty low. The same question was revisited in 1989, and this time it wasn't 12% who considered themselves very important. It was 80% of boys and 77% of girls. All these little kids running around thinking they're special and important, okay? Now, I know that sounds kind of harsh, right? But let's go on. There has been a tremendous increase for the desire of fame. Uh, Fame used to rank low as life's ambition for most people. In a 1976 survey, they asked people to list off their life goals, okay? The 15th out of 16 goals, okay, the 15th was fame, okay? Fast forward now, by 2007, 51% of young people reported that being famous was one of their top personal goals. That was 2007. I mean, think about YouTube now. Anybody can become famous. I bet you that statistic has gone far up. Young people nowadays, that's all they want to do is they want to become Insta-famous. They want to become YouTube-famous. More millennials today are reporting depression, anxiety, and overall sadness. And here's the reason why. Look at what Shankar Vedantam says, okay? He was uh, actually interviewing Gene Twenge on his podcast called Hidden Brain. And he's actually interviewing her about this narcissism that's rising in our culture. And look what he says. He says, there's a real irony here, which is that the generation that has been taught you are special and can make a difference is reaching the conclusion that they are not special and that they can't make a difference. And that must be very painful. And this is why, especially amongst millennials, there was a rise in anxiety and depression because they were told their whole lives, you're special, you're special, you're special, you're somebody, you're big, you're somebody, you're somebody without any proof or evidence of it. And then they get to their jobs, they get to their workplaces, they realize, I can't do this. And their dreams and who they are are now crushed and collapsed. 
And this is how Jean Twenge sort of ends the interview. She says, when you talk to millennials, you can see this disillusionment and anger that they feel. That they were set up with this very buoyant view of what their future was going to be. And they ended being disappointed to when they got to adulthood. They're very, very disappointed. How do you get humility then? See, if we keep telling everyone they're special, we actually make them more prideful. It doesn't actually make them more well-adjusted. They actually become more and more prideful. So how do you get humility? Don't try to get humility. Don't think you're special because here's the reality. We're not special. And I know that's harsh. That's very harsh. I'm not special. Look, you are uniquely and wonderfully made. And God tells you that. You are uniquely and wonderfully made. And so in that sense, yes, you are unique and special in some sense. But you are not the special person. And what this Bible passage tells us is that you are not special. You know why? Because it tells us there's only one person that is special. There's only one name that is above every name. That every knee will bow, that every tongue will confess his name. Because only his name is special. And Paul says you have to have this mind amongst yourself. You're not special. You, you have to worship the one who truly is special. The one who is fully God, who is fully man. And he says, you have to focus in on that. Have that mind. Don't think about yourself. Don't think about what you're doing. He says, place your mind upon Christ, who is special, who was indeed our creator, and yet came in form of man to come and die for our sins. You're not special, but there is one who is special. See, the reason why you tell yourself, I'm special, I'm special, I'm special, is because your heart is looking for something. It's looking for this thing called acceptance. And yet what the gospel tells us is that you are not acceptable, that you are sinners, that you are deserving of wrath, that you are deserving of punishment from God himself. And yet what the passage tells us today is that God became man in human form, and he died for your sins upon the cross. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death upon a cross. And it's because of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, because of his work, because of his specialness, that we are now considered loved and accepted in his sight. Friends, yes, we might not be special. We are uniquely made. Yes, but we're not special. But the scriptures tell us you are loved. You are accepted. You are received by the God himself. You've been looking. Your heart has been looking for that special person to receive and welcome you and accept you. And Christ says, I died on a cross so that I can cleanse you of your sins. I died on a cross and rose again so that I might give you my righteousness so that you can walk into the heavenly gates, so that you can be accepted by the Father and be loved. And that's what your heart's been longing for, not to be special, but to be loved. And friends, when you fix your mind upon that, which is outside your body, when you focus your attention upon Christ and his work and what he's done for you, then the humility would begin to come. It's not about focusing on yourself. It's about focusing upon the only one who deserves every worship, the only one who is special of all, and that is Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, there are many people in here, God, who are walking into 2020 with some shattered relationships, Lord. And there's fighting and there's quarreling. And God, we pray that your Holy 